0: Hi everyone, I'm Elizabeth Stein, founder and CEO of Purely Elizabeth, and this is Live Purely with Elizabeth, featuring candid conversations about how to thrive on your wellness journey. This week's guest is Dr. Jeffrey Bland, an internationally recognized thought leader who has spent more than five decades focused on the improvement of human health. He is known worldwide as the founder of the functional medicine movement, having co-founded the Institute for Functional Medicine, along with Metagenics, Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute, and most recently, Big Bold Health. In this episode, Dr. Bland shares with us the roots of functional medicine and why our medical system is still one of disease care instead of health care. He dives into the next frontier of health, our immune health what factors affect our immune function, and how we can rejuvenate our system with phytochemical-rich foods like Himalayan tartary buckwheat. Dr. Bland also explains how the immunity of people, plants, and the planet are all interconnected through soil health. It was an absolute honor and privilege to have the father of functional medicine on this episode. He is truly a visionary and a legend. Keep listening to learn all about Dr. Bland. Oh, and head on over to BigBoldHealth.com to stock up on your own Himalayan tartary buckwheat and some omega-3s. You can get 20% off your order with code LIVEPURELY20. On to the podcast. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on. I am so honored. And as I just said before we started, this is the highlight of my week having you on today.
1: Well, it's such a highlight for me as well. Uh, you're one of my champions, and uh, I really feel what you've been doing and what you've dedicated your life to and how it's seen in your activity through Purely Elizabeth is truly forward-looking. So it's a, it's a great privilege to have this conversation.
0: Well, thank you. That, that means so much coming from you and talking about dedicating your life and being forward-looking. You completely embody all of that. As the father of functional medicine, I would love to start with your personal journey and and how you got to the idea of functional medicine and what it is for anybody who doesn't know.
1: Yeah. So to to kind of summarize what I would say in a soundbite, functional medicine represents, it represents trying to really focus on how you got to a position where your health is not what you want it to be rather than what you call it. Because I think our medical system is really good at defining a name to what you have, but it's not as good at telling us how we got there. And the reason that that's important to me is if you look look upstream, you then have an opportunity to actually treat the cause and not the effect. And so that is really then asking the question, what kind of changes happen in a person upstream prior to them actually getting this downstream name that's attached to something like diabetes, arthritis, heart disease, whatever it might be. As I examined that over the years, actually over the decades, I came to the conclusion that what people are experiencing prior to getting a name for their condition is they're experiencing changes in function. And those functions can be really broken into four different areas. Their physical function, their metabolic or physiological function, their cognitive function, and their behavioral function. And if you then kind of nest those four together, mash them up, that becomes our overall body function, which is then a reflection of our trajectory, I think, as a human being as to where we're going. Are we going into a path of enlightenment with a hundred years of good living, or are we on a path that's gonna ultimately end up with something that we put a name to it and call ourselves disease? So that really was the foundation of the functional medicine concept.
0: And you obviously weren't practicing functional medicine to begin with. So what really, take us a little bit behind the scenes of what you were doing in your medical world at the time and really what made that shift.
1: Yeah, thank you. So probably like you, great changes or great thoughts we have in our lives are catalyzed by some kind of an experience we had. It could be a personal experience, it could be meeting someone, it could be something that we were affected by, and that was certainly the case for me. I was a professor from 1970 on at, at, at the University, University, of Washington, University of Puget Sound, and I um, then had the opportunity to meet a two-time Nobel Prize winner, Dr. Linus Pauling, who at the time, this was back in the 70s now, was very well known for his book called Linency and See, Common Cold and Flu. And he had um, developed over many, many decades a reputation as being one of the great thought leaders uh, in the world. And in, in fact, uh, Yoda in the Star Wars trilogy was really built on Linus Pauling. Oh, as wow. He was the model. And he, was, he and his wife, Eva Helen, were just the, these remarkable people that were thoughtful about so many things, not just chemistry or about medicine, but about Life in general, and if you really focused on what they were advocating as two extraordinary opinion leaders, it was function because it was hit, it was their belief that if you get the function right, the structure will follow, and and or if you get the structure right, the function will follow. They're they're directly interrelated uh, one to the other, and so I was very flattered to say the least uh, when. One day, he and the president of the Orleans Pauling Institute of Science and Medicine, Emil Dr. Emil Zuckercondl, arrived at our research labs at the university for a meeting with me, and asked if I would be interested in uh, taking a sabbatical and coming down to Stanford to run a research lab for Dr. Pauling and his uh, collaborators at the Pauling Institute of Science and Medicine. You know, I had to think about it for about two minutes, and the reason I had to think about it is I did have a young family at the time. I was heavily involved with my teaching and research responsibility at the university, but I recognized that this was a once-in-a-lifetime chance to to really be with some of the great thinkers of the time. So I, I spent two years in the early 1980s, 81, 83, running a research facility there at, at his institutes, and that was a life-changing experience because I became acquainted not only Having his office next to mine, we had many informal conversations about all sorts of interesting topics. But I also was introduced to all these thought leaders from around the world that would come in to visit with him, you know, people that were top of their fields from all sorts of different fields, from authors to artists to musicians to philosophers to scientists. When I then left uh, to come back to my teaching position, took my family back to Puget to, to, to Sound in, in Washington. State. I um, then recognized that I needed to really change my career. It was really kind of, when I think back now, kind of almost a completely, I don't know what you'd call it, irrational decision. Because I was a tenured faculty member, I had really a great research group. I was liked by the president of the university. I could teach different courses in different departments. I pretty much was my own boss. And I made the decision I was going to give up my tenured professorship and start a company to teach doctors how to do nutrition medicine in their practice. I had no business plan, I had no funding. I was just going to give up the security of my tenured faculty position and start this company, which was going to take what I learned from the Paulings and advance it into healthcare somehow. Well, you know, it was uh, not a linear path, but I have to say eventually that resulted in. Uh, the formation of Metagenics, which became quite a prominent company in the uh, in the nutrition products area for physicians, for health practitioners. And, and then that led to just, uh, my wife and I started the Institute for Functional Medicine and coined the term functional medicine in 1990. So it, was all, it all worked out, but it was not a linear path. And I, I think back uh, how silly I was. I had kids, I had a mortgage, I had all the responsibilities, and I just kind of started from scratch and you know, threw my feet to the wind, but it, it all worked out fine.
0: Well, I love that speaking to to my heart as far as sometimes when you feel what's right and it might not be the rational thing, as you said, you have everything lined up, but really going for probably what felt right in your gut and what you were passionate about to, to make change. And you've now since created incredible impact on the world, on our medical world, on how so many people think and now- Live And so thank you for all of that and for making that irrational decision.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, as with you, I'm sure with with your starting up, Carol Elizabeth, you have all sorts of unexpected things. You know, people uh, often say to me, uh, what do you think, Jeff, about starting a company? And I said, well, be aware that everything you think is going to happen probably is not going to happen. and Everything that you thought was not going to happen probably will happen. So you better be prepared for the unexpected. And if you love living in that uh, that limbo zone of jumping out of a plane uh, and then trying to figure out how to do, um, open your parachute on the way down, then that's probably the perfect thing for you. But if your nervous system isn't really accommodating that kind of thing, it's probably not the best thing for you.
0: Absolutely. That's so true. You're definitely cut cut for that or not. I think it's a hard thing to learn to wire yourself that way. So now, so many years later, after starting the Institute for Functional Medicine and and coining the term, here we are. Twenty will be have this will be out in twenty twenty three. So when this comes out, twenty twenty three, how do you feel about where functional medicine is today, and and where the rest of the modern medicine world is? Is there anything that you're surprised at the time? Did you think, oh God, by twenty twenty three, everybody will be practicing this, or what did that look like for you?
1: Well, uh, thank you, that's a really great question. So I think it's uh, a little bit of all shades of the rainbow from 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 brilliant technicolor to still the dawn <laughs> with the illumination just starting. It's a mixture of all of that because when I first started, and I've said this facetiously, but it's not too far from the truth actually. When I started in the 1970s, the middle 1970s giving, Courses or lectures for physicians around medical nutrition. If I could get enough people to fill a phone booth to listen, I was doing well. I mean, literally, I, I'm slightly exaggerating, but it was, there were not many receptive years at that point. The impetus for this change, I think, occurred stepwise, but it started to get into a hockey stick somewhere around the year 2000. And I think there are many reasons for that, because around 2000 it became more well recognized that our medical system, which we called our healthcare system, was really our disease care system. It wasn't really a healthcare system, and you know that's not to overly criticize what was going on. I think that the disease care system that we evolved is extraordinarily talented, sophisticated, uh, probably the best in the world, but you can only be really good at one thing and to put health under the disease care system starting to be recognized as a mistake because you cannot manage health in the same system that you're managing disease. And so you people would say, but we do have a health care system. It's called the public health care system. And I think what happened around the turn of the century is people started recognizing the whole of just a minute. Each one of us are a unique facet on the diamond of life. No two people are identical. And this concept that we could deal with people's health in a community-based public health system and get that to work at the individual level just wasn't successful. There are certain principles that are good public health principles, but to then try to design a individualized health system out of a public health system that's designed for community-based and population-based health, was just not going to work. So now around 2000, when we have the Human Genome Project, we had the whole concept of personalization starting to emerge. I think people starting to say, we need something else. And that something else has to be connected into the understanding of who that individual is. And that then is connected to their function. Their, as I said, their physical, cognitive, emotional, and metabolic function. So I think around 2000, at least for me, the the theme started to change. Our audiences for our program started to increase. We started having more impact. That was what like uh, 10 years into the functional medicine movement, where now we started to really get much more traction. And from 2000 to 2022, that's been kind of an exponential growing phase of, of the whole concept in the organization. Now well over 150,000 health practitioners have been through its courses. More than 60% of them are MDs and DOs. So I, I think we're starting... And by the way, of those, about two-thirds are female physicians, which I find very um, interesting because I think there's a lot of power in women bringing their energy into, into medicine. And, and uh, you know, when I was a, a professor and I was in charge of the, of the pre-med programs and getting students prepared to go to medical school... We had very few women uh, back then. This is the seventies. Had very few women going into medical school. Now, it's, yeah. as you know, there are more women admitted to American medical schools than there are men. So we're seeing a very great change, I think, in the whole culture that the languaging and the, uh, the the style underpins medical education.
0: That's great. Well, that that gives some hope. So, how do you think? I mean, what what changes have to happen? As I think about the difference of you go and see your general practitioner and it's a five-minute meeting that you have, if that, and they, they tap your knee, look at your eye, and that's about it. And if you were to see a functional doctor, certainly that would be much more elaborate and a whole conversation. So how how does it start to evolve to really change the regular GP system?
1: Yeah, thank you. So if we, again, go back to my basic at least tenet, my belief, is that our healthcare system is really a disease care system. And then you start saying, well, how does that manifest through family practice or general practice in the way docs are trained and the way they're reimbursed, by the way.
0: Right.
1: Because a lot of how you practice is related to how you're reimbursed. It's all related to helping the absence of disease. That's the general tenet. And how do you know if you have an absence of disease? You measure certain things that are principles of disease and if they're not there, by their absence, you're healthy. So that's the general tenet. Now, is that completely wrong? No, no, it's, it's not completely wrong. <laughs> but the, the challenge, of course, is that if you look today at expenditures for healthcare, nearly two thirds of those expenditures are spent on things that don't fall into these tidy disease packages. They're chronic illnesses that go on for years for which we don't have any clear way of treating them. This would be things like autoimmune disease, uh, things like uh, cognitive dysfunction, things like prediabetes, things like uh, chronic inflammatory disorders, things like digestive disorders. I could go down the list. You've had a chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia. Now we have post COVID syndrome, long haul syndrome. All of those don't fall nicely into a tidy diagnostic category for which you can give a name and treat it with a specific drug. And so where does that land? That land somewhere that doesn't exist today. It's in the system that we're developing. It's in the healthcare system around these, what I call syndromes, not diseases, of which there are so many of those that are are apparent in our society for which we do not have adequate solutions that reside within our disease care system. So now that's where we have the opportunity not to replace the disease care system, but to be equal in importance to the disease care system, with a healthcare system that's focused on function.
0: As you think about the the systems and and I think some of the foundational underlining, I know that you were at the beginning of gut health and and where that was going to be such an important part of our understanding of our overall health. And I know the next frontier you're looking at is this has become immune health. So I'd love to get into immune health, why it's so important for overall health and kind of start with the basics and then we'll build on that.
1: Yes. So this was part of my actually evolution. I've had the privilege of now working with a number of people that have stayed with me (laughs) They get the endurance award. Stayed with <laughs> for over 25 years. It
0: says a lot about you.
1: Well, I think it says a lot about their tolerance actually, <laughs> the capacity to manage, manage my personality. But the one of those uh, people who have had a two and a half decade professional relationship is uh, Trish Hurey, and Trish is our director of communications and and has been working on Jeff Blaine communications for all these decades. And so one day about three years ago i, I was railing on a Monday morning after to a medical meeting and I often do this when I come back I start unloading and she was she has to take my my kind of narrative <laughs> she does so very graciously so after I finished she said, so Jeff you know you're you're talking about these things that, for decades that I've known you and you know you're getting getting along in your career you've done a, a number of different things. Have you thought about maybe there's just one more shot at the uh at the goal for you, or one more bite of the apple, whatever you want to say, because you know, you're a fairly big guy in stature. You're really very bold. So maybe you ought to start Big Bold Health and start another company that really is focusing specifically on taking this message you've got to the general consumer, not just the health professional. And, and she said, if you did that, what would be the gateway into getting people's attention about how they can own their health, not just prevent their diseases, but own their health? And she really challenged me. I thought it was a really great conversation. And I said, well, of all the things that, that we've explored over the years, including uh, the four basic therapeutic approaches that I'm very proud of. If someone asked me, what, what am I most proud of having been a principal for having developed in our field? There are four different therapeutic tools. And I think I've been, I wouldn't say I was the guy alone that developed them, but I was a principal with a group in developing them that include Gastrointestinal restoration, which we call the 4R program, which is remove, replace, re-inoculate, repair. It's something that virtually every provider of functional medicine now learns. I think it's now got 4Rs in it, but it's a program that we developed in the 80s. Secondly is um, metabolic detoxification, another program that we developed in the early 90s. Third is mitochondrial resuscitation, talking about bioenergetics and how you enhance the energetic machinery of your cells. And then more recently, it's this immunorejuvenation concept, how you rejuvenate your immune system. Those four represent what I think therapeutically are my contributions to the field. And so when Trish uh, asked me, how would you, in your big, bold health state, Jeff, what would you say is the gateway of entry? I said, if we could teach people how their immune system was connected to their immune, uh, nervous system and how that was connected to their gut microbiome and their gut's immune system, and get them to own that system, so they became the owner of their immunity, not the victim of their immunity, that would be a huge step forward in healthcare. And she said, okay, why don't we start a company together and let's do that. So that that became then taking all that we've been discussing since my first seminar in doctors on, on gut restoration, which was uh, 1985 on, I, I developed, wow. didn't develop, I used the term endotoxicity, leaky gut, Gut toxicity was a concept that we were talking about in 1985 with, with practitioners. All those years of experience that we've had with that, and then connecting it to the immune system, because more than half of our immune system is clustered around our intestinal tract. In fact, there were 60%, 70% of the antibodies that flowed around in our blood came from the immune system that was in our gut. And so, how do we connect all that together into a plan that people can actually implement in their lives? and start owning their immune system. That was the, the basis, basis of this Big Bold Health concept.
0: Well, I, I also like the idea of that, just the name Big Bold Health, right? As this next phase of your journey is is really going for it in a big way. So let's get into more of the details on immunorejuvenation, reju- how, how we can improve, or, and I know there's a difference between improving and boosting. So maybe getting into that and start there.
1: Yeah, so I, I think that um, we have seen such tremendous advances made in understanding the immune system over really two epic periods over the last 30 years. The first period I, I was involved with, actually it's now coming up 40 years ago, it's hard to believe. I was at the Pauling Institute when the first case of Kaposi's sarcoma was diagnosed at the San Francisco Hospital, And we started working with HIV patients and AIDS in the early 80s. And uh, most people who were around at that time probably want to put in the back of their minds uh, how horrible that period of time was with people that got infected. It was pretty much a death sentence. Very few people escaped from having that infection if if they had it. And... um, there were all sorts of things that people were saying could be useful, most of which proved not to be correct. And the whole pathos of that condition and how it changed our culture globally was powerful. It, it was a viral infection, the uh, HIV, the human immunodeficiency virus. And then period of time went by <laughs> several decades and you know, memory sometimes they're short And then we get re-exposed to this extraordinarily insidious SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is, if you think about it, really remarkably dangerous because it doesn't kill people immediately, most people. It doesn't infect children like normal viral infections Our normal kids get the first examples of, of virus infections like cold and flu and things. It doesn't produce serious symptoms when you're infected at first, so you become a transmitter without actually being sick. I mean, this is like a super designed horrible, but it's basically horrible condition. And then to top it off, what have we learned? That no matter how severe your infection was, you have a risk towards this, what's now called long-haul COVID, because it's gotten into your system and it's marked your immune system and your nervous system in such a way that it carries a memory that now produces a state of dysfunction not too dissimilar from what we saw with post viral fatigue syndrome called chronic fatigue, or not too dissimilar from desert storm, or not too dissimilar from EDV. All of these conditions, or fibromyalgia, are associated with this fatigue, cognitive dysfunction, brain fog, low-energy, chronic pain syndrome Phenomena which we have still not in medicine found a solution to because it's so complicated. But it's complicated nature relies, or I think you know, sits in the complex alteration of our immune system that has been scarred by the memories from this infection. Now the question is, and this is the important question of our time, is this a one-way street? And once you ask that question, It opens up a door of extraordinary opportunity, because it's not only exposure to viruses that we see now can scar your immune system, it's also exposure to trauma in your life. It could be post-traumatic stress, it could be violence, it could be abuse, it could be lack of love and, and lack of acceptance. All of these things, we know, both psychological factors and physical factors and chemical factors, like xenobotics, the things that are out there like uh, phthalates and, and plasticizers, and all these things, they all converge to influence our immune system, to put marks on our immune system, which is called epigenetic marks, that mark our immune system as having had bad days, that it remembers. And when it remembers those bad days, it sets up... An alarm reaction and that alarm reaction is one of, of kind of programmed in inflammation so people end up in these states of chronic inflammation so alterations of our gut microbiome alterations of our chemical processing centers like detoxification alterations in our immune systems energy metabolism through mitochondrial dysfunction alterations in the way people are sending toxic experiences to their immune systems, like hostility, like rejection, lack of love, lack of acceptance. Um, How about lack toxic? of sleep? Is that what? Yes. Thank you, lack of sleep, exactly. All of these factors, it's like the uh, total load effect, then aggregates together on our immune system to carry forward this feeling of being burdened. And now we, now we ask the question, why is it that in the United States, a country with more advanced healthcare and more uh, things than most any other country in the world, even developed countries, do we find that we had the highest serious outcome from the SARS-CoV-2 virus infection across all ages, not just older age people, but across all ages, we had the most serious, because we found that our immune health was not good. Our immune health was actually much more compromised than we had recognized. And we were giving ourselves a false assumption that we were this healthy nation. We were not a healthy nation. We were a nation that had a thin veneer of health laying over this immune dysfunction. So now the question is, is this a one-way street? And that's the exciting part of the story, because everything I've said to this point sounds gloom. <laughs>
0: doom and gloom. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Who wants to talk to Jeff Plan. But the good news is that Thanks to all the work that's been going on in the field of immunology, now it has been discovered over the last 10 years that this is a a two-way street. Those marks that you put on, those scars on the immune system, can be taken off and rejuvenated to give another opportunity to send a different message to the immune system that becomes more flexible in terms of its or more resilient in terms of its exposure to future events. So It's not like getting rid of all of your immunity. You don't want to do that. You want to keep your immunity, but you want to get rid of these marks that were put on your immune system that are locking you into this inflammatory cycle that's associated with all these chronic diseases that we are aware of. Diabetes, chronic fatigue syndrome, dementia, uh, heart disease, arthritis. All these things have this chronic inflammatory condition associated with them. So the good news is that we are discovering that within our capability is to rejuvenate this immune system. Now, you ask the question, what about boosting? Well, my response is, what happens if you boost a deranged immune system? If you boost an immune system that's already in a state of hypervigilance and in an inflammatory state, that can aggravate the problem. We've seen this, obviously, with COVID individuals that sometimes have a hyper state of vigilance of their immune system and boosting, it actually creates more serious outcome. So I think that what we are starting to recognize, boosting isn't always what you want to do. You may want to rejuvenate, reestablish the set point of your immune system, increase its resilience, and then start moving forward with this new template for capabilities in your immune system where its farm.
0: Oh, so if I'm understanding it correctly, then all these factors affect our immune system affect put these markers on our genes, which then we think, okay, these are the genes that I have, but the reality is we can actually change those. And just because we are given a sentence to X, it isn't really so. And so, so what are the key ways in which we can rejuvenate our immune system?
1: So this is back to the future, isn't it? it, It's so fascinating for the things that you stood for with Purely Elizabeth, if we were to take all the sciences developed and all these machinations for geekism that probably I spend more time in my life doing it than would be considered (laughs) acceptable, they really translate into very important things about our daily living. Are we being exposed to toxins? Are we engaged in consumption of foods that have the family of, or the portfolio of nutrients that have been demonstrated to be involved in this process of immunorejuvenation? Are we staying away from toxic relationships to the extent possible? Are we limiting our exposure to things that we know are putting these marks on our genes that will then cause us to be in a chronic state of inflammation? Are we getting proper sleep? Are we spending enough time each day to have some time for ourselves for garbage collecting of the debris that occurs and accumulates from daily metabolic activity. That could be sleep, that could be exercise, that could be relaxation, that could be meditation, that could be listening to music, it could be reading poetry, any number of different approaches. All of these things that seem so, quote, commonplace are actually not commonplace at all. They are powerful therapeutic tools that are designed Historically, through the evolution of the human species, to be there in access for us to rejuvenate our immune system.
0: So, let's get to the topic of food. And I know one of the pillars of big, bold health has a special ingredient, which I'd love if you would share this story. Because, as you alluded to at the beginning of our conversation of meeting the right people and being at the right time, you shared this story the other day and this one I loved. So let's dive into your discovery of Himalayan tar- tartary buckwheat.
1: Yeah. So, so thank you very much. This, this again is, you know, life is never a straight line. It has all these interesting twists and turns. And as long as you have your eyes open and you kind of are conscious of what's going on, sometimes you can have amazing discoveries. So that happened for me. So as I, as I mentioned, Tertiary my colleague talked about this big old health concept. And so we, we started this new company about three years ago to try to um, help people discover how to own their immune systems. By the way, this is pre COVID, this was pre SARS. It turns out that as we were doing this, I read, I'm, I'm kind of a, a bibliophile. I read a lot of journal articles in the, in the medical and nutrition and cellular biology journal kingdom. And I had seen this article, the Journal of Clinical Investigation, work done at Vanderbilt University Medical School on this uh, new approach to managing blood pressure. And the way they were describing it to lower blood pressure in people with hypertension, they were talking about the calming of their immune system that would then calm their blood vessels and relax their blood vessels. And so it was an immune approach towards lowering blood pressure. And I had never thought about that as a mechanism. So when I read the paper very carefully, I found out that they had discovered a specific molecule, a specific chemical called 2-hydroxybenzylamine, I'll abbreviate it 2 HLBa, that was capable of speaking to the immune system that then spoke to the blood vessels to cause them to relax and to lower blood pressure. And I thought, wow, that is, that is really cool. And as I read the article very closely, I found that I saw in the kind of small print that there was only one source in nature that they could find for this compound, 2 hydroxybenzylamine It was in the food called tartary buckwheat from the Himalayas. And I said, well, geez, I know a little about buckwheat, but I've never heard about Himalayan tartary buckwheat. By the way, tartary comes from the, the tartan district of China. That's where that word comes from. So I didn't coincidentally was just, about to leave to go to China for an invitation to speak at this uh, this Chinese Medical Association meeting in Harbin, China, a very northernmost city, big city in China, between North Korea and Russia, about 20 million people living in this city. And uh, I was going to speak about functioning medicine to about 10,000 Chinese medical doctors. So I said, as I was leaving, I said, Trish, you know, I just read this article on this stuff called Himalayan Tartary Buckley. What do you know about that? She said, well, I, I don't know anything about it. But while you're gone, I will see if I can do some research. So when I came back, she had done her research and she found out that there was only one person she could identify in the United States that was growing this. He was a former Cornell University A research professor that was retired, who was nursed by in Angelica, New York, upstate New York, and they were growing on a hobby farm this uh, Seeds that he got from the USDA that turned out to be Himalayan Tartary buckwheat. That was the only place we could find it growing in the United States. Well, ironically, as I was in China, my host there was a, a medical doctor from Shanghai, but he was also got a PhD from the United States universities. And he and I spent the better part of a week together. And taking the bullet train from Harbin to, to Shanghai, which is about twenty two hundred miles, so we had a good train ride, but we were going two hundred and fifty miles an hour which is pretty amazing watching <laughs> China pass by us like a motion picture. And halfway across China, we're in the, all these agriculture areas. I I said to him, I said, so Joe, have you ever heard about this stuff called tartary buckley, Himalayan tartary buckley, and this compound called 2 hydroxyl And it was like we were freeze praying. It's like the train stopped, like time stood still. He looked at me with this eye there, and he says, I can't believe it. And I said, why is that? He said, we have been looking for someone in the United States who has the background and the interest in talking to about this Himalayan territory, Buckley, because my research group, which is in Wuhan, a very interesting city, is the largest research group working on Tuhoba. Wow, That's our area especially. And we've been looking for someone to try to collaborate with from the United States. So by the time I got back from China, we had identified Sam Beard, his wife, Darren Angelica of the We had the linkage with Vanderbilt University, and now we had this very interesting linkage with the re- research groups in, in China. So that then made us suddenly into a Reed buckwheat focus group because it turned out that this plant is like a biochemical factory manufacturing the levels of immune-active flavonoids, polytenols, some 50 to 100 times higher than any other plant food that we could find. Not 50 Uh, to 50, 50, 100 percent, 50 to 100 times higher. And so we then started to become Himalayan Chattery Buckwheat aficionados. That led us into forming a Himalayan Chattery Buckwheat Cooperative with Organic Farmers in upstate New York, thanks to Mr. Beer and his introduction. We then ultimately bought uh, Angelica Mills as the uh, part of our Big bowl Health business activity because we really wanted to focus on growing and exploring Himalayan Turmeric buckwheat. So now we're the only producers of organic Himalayan Turmeric buckwheat, certainly in the United States, maybe in the world. I'm not sure about that. But we are fully invested in this as an immune active, I guess you call it superfood.
0: Wow. What an amazing story. I mean, the moment that You were both looking at each other on the train must have just been phenomenal. I I am such a firm believer in everything in life being meant to be. And that is evidence of that, right? It's pure magic.
1: Yeah, and it's led us into all sorts of things. At this phase of my life, I've been so wonderful because when I started as a professor, my initial appointment as an assistant professor was a dual appointment in chemistry and environmental science because the university, this was the start of Earth year, Earth Day, was in 1970. And most universities were then trying to start an environmental studies program to respond to this Earth Day movement. So I was hired as a person to start an environmental science program and with part of my joint appointment being in the chemistry department. So I I have had this very, very strong joint interest between environmental-related issues, global, planetary issues. I taught graduate students, did research on on environmental-related issues, ecology issues, simultaneous to this human health and nutrition issues. So to go full circle now to where we are now doing regenerative organic agriculture farming and I'm I got my hands in the soil with our food scientist Emily Reese and with our farmers uh, Thor Oshner and his farmers and with our first uh, organic miller Greg Russo that we now have this artisanal mill that we're using. I mean, it's it's like back to the future for me, and it, it's it really uh, kind of uh, closes the circle for me.
0: Yeah, it must be so wonderful having all your passions really come together. On the topic of regenerative and soil, I'd love for you to touch on for a moment really helping us understand the connection between our soil health, the soil microbiome, our health, and how that all plays together?
1: Oh, I'm so glad that you raised that question because it turns out, my, this is part of my education. I'd I, I have to say that I was fairly naive to the concept of the mycorrhiza until recently. And uh, the mycorrhiza is, as, as we know, the fungal and microbiological living organisms that are, are in our soil that speak actually to the seeds when they've been put in the soil to grow. They actually chemically communicate together. And as a consequence, they produce an outcome, which then becomes how that seed develops into its plant and the plant ultimately into its fruits or its seeds. And so this concept that there is a system of interrelationships between soil health, plant health, and ultimately the health of the things the plant produces, which become part of human health when we eat them, it's, it's a system that really ties in unity into a global perspective. So now it's planetary health, soil health, plant health, human health, they're all interconnected. And I really come to recognize this, and I, again, we have this uh, soil scientist, Emily Reese that is working as part of our group, who is our soil steward, as she calls herself, uh, calls herself. And um, we actually did a very interesting study. It took a year to do, obviously, where we did a field trial of inoculating different field plots with different mycorrhizae to see if we could enhance the phytochemical content of the Himalayan tertiary buckwheat by different ways of enriching the soil with different microbiota, different fungi and, and bacteria might enhance the mycorrhizae. And, and lo and behold, we just harvested those field plots and and then took the seed and did the chemical analysis. And we were able to demonstrate that with the proper mycorrhizal inoculation, we were able to enhance the production of phytochemicals. Once again, demonstrating that this is a system. It's not just the seed in isolation, it's the seed in its environment that then enhances the ultimate production of, of its full assembly of uh, nutrition and, and phytochemical portfolio.
0: That's so interesting. And I think one where just in general, the importance of regenerative agriculture is going to be, I think the future in the next couple of years here, as we realize that the plants that we're eating or a lot of the plants, not all the plants, a lot of the plants that we're eating are so void of nutrition that really getting back to that soil health is imperative for our future health, our immune health and our overall health of-
1: Yeah, so let me me reinforce what you just said. It's, I think, a really important point to put exclamation points and underlining. So because we now have developed a group of organic farmers who have been doing this farming organically for more than 20 years, we have some really good farmers who love their soil, love their land is is really precious. One of our lead farmers, actually he is our lead farmer, when we first started farming Himalayan Turkey Buckley, which is, because uh, we can't go and buy the seed from the store. We have to make, grow our own seed. So it took us a year to get the seed so we could plant more acres. And at that point in time with uh, Sam Beer as the person at, in his Angelica Farm, Angelica Mills Farm, producing the seed for us, he said, Jeff, expect on a good year, you'll probably get around 10 bushels an acre production from the growing of tartary buckley As we've now gotten into using farmers who are, remember he was a research professor doing a hobby farm. So now we're your professional farmers who have been organically farming for 20 years. And now we're re-nourishing the soil and really building it up. Our yield now without any fertilizer, without any kind of synthetic chemicals has gone from 10 bushels an acre to 35 bushels an acre. Wow, that's incredible. And, and the phytochemical content has gone up in the process. So it just shows you the importance of systems of how if we think in a systematic way of it's not just producing yield alone, it's producing nutrition quality yield that comes from a healthy soil, a healthy environment.
0: That's great. So everyone can get your uh, Himalayan tartary broccoli on the site. They can incorporate into recipes, anywhere that they would use a flour, but you could also take as a supplement as well, correct?
1: Yeah, one of the things we recognize is, and and, and I know you you know this as well, is not everybody is a baker <laughs> or a cook. Uh, most people want to aspire to have good nutrition that we deal with, but not everybody goes into the kitchen. And so uh, we wanted to make this as accessible as possible. So we figured, okay, we need to put it into a superfood shake mix which we did, we need to take concentrates of it and put it into supplements so they can get that portfolio of phytochemicals without having to do cooking. So we, we hopefully reduce the barrier of entry for people that could find different solutions to the problem. And so we're, um, we're actually now working on a whole variety of, of new and I, I think very exciting ideas. We will be producing the first organically produced uh, Himalayan turnip buckwheat sprouts and sprout powder that will be uh, our our next adventure we've been uh, developing for for a year we're also producing a uh, in development now of a himalayan tartary buckwheat fermented product using probiotic organisms that we can get into all sorts of interesting configurations including even uh, things like tartary buckwheat cheese Um, you you can do all sorts of things with with this product by drying it once you've fermented it and so Lots of different ways of compounding and using the natural nature of, of the food to produce different ingredients.
0: That sounds fantastic. Well, we can't wait to see what's next. So we're going to move on to some rapid fire Q&A to close things out. The best advice that you've gotten in the past six months?
1: Oh, the best advice. I think the best advice really comes from conversations I've been having with my colleague, Dr. Joe Pizarno Dr. Bazzardo is the founder of Bastyr University. Um, I, I was one of the co-founders. He was the principal founder. He's the president for many years. He's a world leader in natural medicine and has written an uh, encyclopedia of natural medicine. And his focus for the last, oh, maybe 10 years has been on toxicity. I, I believe that the best advice that I, I've had recently is, Jeff, make sure that you are really paying attention to what we're learning now about these residual toxins in our environment and the adverse effects are heavy on our health. It's understated, it's underserved, and it needs much more broadcast to the general public because you probably saw this article that just appeared pretty staggering. A study that was done on sperm counts in males retrospectively over the last um, several decades. And what it found was that declining sperm count in males, it's going at such a rate that If it were to continue in 50 years, virtually all babies born in this country will have to occur through artificial insemination, IVF. Oh my God. We will not have enough viable sperm in males for pregnancy. That's how scary, it begs the question, why are we seeing dropping sperm count? There's probably many of the variables, but certainly one of these is the exposure to these um, xenohormones and all the things that come through environmental toxicity. So uh, I I would just raise that as a very important feature for us to spend some time thinking about.
0: Wow. What do you wish more people knew about you?
1: I think that my my most significant hope is that people can find their way through my geekism to understand that I've really been speaking for 40-plus years about how people can aspire and achieve high level health by taking charge of things that are within their daily zone of control. And that I have been giving practical language to that, and my model of function has been consistent for 40 years. That if we can get people to own their function, they will own their health and they will aspire to have the outcome. Whatever their health means to them, they will be able to achieve it. Uh, so I. I I would like it to be seen that there is a common denominator in all this stuff I've been speaking about over the years, which is people owning their own health.
0: I know that you're a biohacker of sorts. What is a a favorite wellness tool, so to speak?
1: (laughs) Well, I I definitely am a biohacker. My wife uh, kids me all the time that, you know, what new toy am I playing with? You know, there was, I think there was a time where I had 15 different wearables I was wearing just to test one against the other. All right, then I, I'm going to give you what are your three favorites. <laughs> yeah. So I've I, I cut it down. I think you just held up your hand and I think I saw in your finger. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I have one as well. And, and the reason that I have landed on Orary, and I have no, by the way, uh, commercial attachment to the company, but the reason I landed on it is it, to me, it is an easily transportable thing. It's cosmetically easy to to put on my body. It uh, doesn't have a lot of radiation exposure, and it actually has the biometrics that I think most encompass surrogate markers for our immune system function. And I actually did a series of blogs on this. If you actually uh, were to do a search on on a search engine of immune assessment and aura, uh, my blogs come up because I were I think the first person in in early February of two thousand and twenty one, in which I showed what was happening to my aura ring levels when I, uh, I had my first immunization. And it, uh, it really uh, was quite interesting to me to see what influence it had, even though I was not really feeling sick, it had a very dramatic effect on my, on my aura ring values, my readiness score and so forth. So I then took that and did a whole series of blogs that have been studying that. And now there are a whole series of, of articles in the literature in which people have studied scientifically the role of surrogate markets of, of your immune system with the uh, biometrics that we get off the Aura Ring. So, that to me is, I, I think there are many other products that have also useful biometrics similar to those that you find in the Aura. But I, I have just used that as kind of a continued stream of data within, within our own research project.
0: I love that. I'm such a fan, it's fascinating. And I just got my booster and my flu shot last week. And I couldn't believe I woke up the next morning and my readiness score was a 50. Yeah. So it was it was wild how it changed my metrics.
1: Yeah, I think thank you for saying that. When I first um <laughs> when I first put that on the blog, two things happened. One, people criticized me for getting in immunization with this then unknown mRNA vaccine, which I think, by the way, was very intelligent and I recommend it to all people. But secondly, there was this criticism that uh, how do we know this would really tie to the immune system? But now with not only our own work, but many, many other groups starting to show how things like heart rate variability, uh, body temperature and sleeping, respiration rate, sleep cycling, oxygen saturation, uh, all of these things are surrogate markers for your immune system status. So when you roll them up together into an algorithm, you have a pretty good marker of immune system. And when I did it, my, like you, uh, I normally run about, oh, between 85 and 90 on my readiness score. And it was down at 66 the next morning. I'd never seen it that low. It was so,
0: terrifying.
1: Yeah, it, it, really, it really was dramatic.
0: All right, and last question. What is your number one non-negotiable to thrive on your wellness journey?
1: That's a tough one, but I would say time-wasting. Time is our most precious and irreplaceable thing. There are only so many clicks on the the clock that we get in the course of a lifetime, and I recognize it becomes more precious at 76 and a half than probably when I was 30. But I think time-wasting, there's so much to do, and there's so so little time, and I want it to be done in a way that that produces value. Now, it's value because I feel like I'm in a pay-forward situation. I've been so blessed with extraordinary friends and colleagues and experiences and, and the luxury of, you know, 6 million miles of travel that I've done in my life, that I feel that there's a pay-forward responsibility. And so it's using that time as, as, uh, as well as I can. Now that doesn't mean I'm always busy because even in my time, there should be rest. There should be reflection, but it's, it's intentional time use. It's not wasting time. So that I think would be my takeaway.
0: Jeff, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for giving your precious time. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you.
1: Well, Elizabeth, you're, you're a guide and a model. And as I've said, I think the world right now, as I was mentioning with medical school admissions, needs a lot of very insightful, high energy and focused female leaders. And, and you're certainly one of those. And uh, you know, I, I'm very privileged to have a lot of, women of that type working with me that are really going to be helping to change the architecture of our future. And and so I just want to champion all that you're doing.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining me on Live Purely with Elizabeth. I hope you feel inspired to thrive on your wellness journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review. You can follow us on Instagram at purely underscore Elizabeth to catch up on all the latest. See you next Wednesday on the podcast.